this morning we are going to uh, go back to where we left off last fall, and that would be the end of November in our sermon series from 1 Corinthians, Good News for the Not-So-Good, and today is uh, a message that is the end of chapter 10. If you were here last fall, you recall that we spent about five weeks talking about the first part of chapter 10, and then really, you know, being on guard, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall, and... Uh, and so we're going to go back to the series this morning. Uh, you recall in the beginning of January, I, I shared on drawing near, uh, and then God is able. In the last three weeks, uh, I've been talking about overtaken by God's blessings from Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. And so uh, just going back, if you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just to give you a little background of where we came from, but then also to read where we're going today. We'll be mainly picking up on verse 14. But it says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, where the Apostle Paul writes these words, I do not want you to be uh, unaware, ignorant brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from the spiritual rock for which, which followed them, and that rock was Christ. So we looked at this in detail last fall and talked about how Israel, the people of Israel, were truly children of privilege. They had God's presence. They had God's provision. I mean, manna, day in and day out. They had God's protection. There was the cloud by day. There was the fire by night, and so they had uh, a furnace, if you will, at nighttime when it was cold in the desert. They had the cloud to keep them cooler from the hot desert sun. Uh, they had godly leadership. They were baptized into Moses, and they had the presence of Jesus Christ. And that rock, Paul says, was Christ. In other words, they drank from the living water, so to speak. And God promised to go before them, walk beside them, uh, uh, work through them, to overshadow them. They're going to bring them into his promised land, into the fullness of his purpose. And so Israel had all these things going for them. By the way, Scott, thank you for leading us in worship today. You did a great job. Thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, amen. Israel had so many things going for them, and yet Paul writes this, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And so here we have Israel loving the privileges, loving the blessings of God, and yet they were not interested in the responsibilities that went with them. Uh, Israel missed, missed out with God, and Paul reminds the church at Corinth these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10. So if you think you are standing firm, Paul writes, be careful, take heed, you know, be on guard that you don't fall. And then he says this, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The bottom line here is that, is that professing believers may not justify sinning 
with excuses that they say, well, I'm human, you know, I'm, I'm imperfect, everybody sins, you know, or that, the, that in this life all born-again believers continue sinning in word, thought, and deed. At the same time, Paul assures the church at Corinth that no true believer need fall from God's grace. Did you hear that? No true believer need fall from God's grace because God has provided His children with adequate grace to overcome every temptation and thus to resist sinning. And so if Christians do yield to sin, it's not because of Christ's provision of grace is inadequate, but really because believers fail to resist their own sinful, evil desires by the power of the Spirit. I would also encourage you to read uh, sometime this week as you're rereading 1 Corinthians 10, read Romans chapter 6 as it relates then also to 1 Corinthians 10. And even Peter reminds us that God's divine power has given us, you and I, everything we need for life and godliness. And so as we continue this series in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul concludes his discussion of what really is for us a seemingly uh, irrelevant, at least for us, a topic. He's been talking about, if you recall, food sacrificed to idols, meat that has been sacrificed to idols, a custom that is, that is really not observed in 21st century America, but it was really a hot-button issue for the church at Corinth. Now, people, a little background here, people would go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to their gods, G-O-D-S, small letters. Uh, these sacrifices, typically meat then, would be served in the temple restaurants or they would be sold, the meat would be sold in the marketplace. And so there was this debate going on back then, is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god. On one hand, some would say, absolutely not. You know, the meat is tainted, and by consuming it, you corrupt yourself. On the flip side of that, others would say, yes, no big deal. These so-called gods don't actually exist. They're merely figments of the cultural imagination. This meat isn't any different from any other meat that you would buy in the marketplace. It doesn't come prepackaged, you know. This, this package of meat has the word blessed on it. This package has the word cursed on it. It doesn't come prepackaged like that. And so Paul in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians begins discussing this and the discussion really takes him into matters of greater significance than merely what you buy at the supermarket or in this case meat sacrificed to idols. We explored all that in recent months. And Paul talks about really the nature of true spirituality, and it's really not how good you are, but how good you are to others. How do you and I treat other people? Well, that led Paul then to a discussion of what it means to live our lives on purpose and to have a mission of such magnitude that you just can't simply ignore it. As Paul would say himself, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. And so Paul felt this, 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 uh, this urgency about him given by the Holy Spirit to do what God had called him to do. And really, if you're going to pursue this calling, as Paul did, you're going to run a race and you're, you're, want, you're wanting to win that race, as Paul then writes about in chapter 9. Now, 
after this discussion begins with this matter of food being sacrificed to idols, that leads Paul then to issue a, a warning to the, uh, the, smug, the smug and the self-satisfied. And Paul is simply saying, you guys, you might know as much as you think, as you, as you, think you know, so take time to learn. Take heed unto yourselves. Please be careful. Take heart in God's promise to give you strength to stand up in your time of need when you're facing temptation. God has made a way. After all, Paul is saying God is faithful. God's going to help you because no temptation is going to overtake you. God's going to make a way out. That was where Paul ended then. And we pick up this morning in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break in a part, our participation in the body of Christ. We just celebrated communion last Sunday. Because, Paul says, there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel, verse 18. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Verse 24, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Verse 27, if some believer invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it for, for both the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience, I mean not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, and here's the goal, so that they may be saved. <sighs> that completes chapter 10, but Paul really loops back to an original topic, what to do about food that has been sacrificed to idols. And really Paul emphasizes a couple of ideas that he had emphasized before, and he challenges the church at Corinth as well as us today to, to, to look at the, the big picture principles, if you will, that can shape a person's attitude, not only toward this topic, but really toward any topic that can become a matter of debate. And there are some of those topics. 
I mean, over the years, there have been a number of different topics that have been debated among Christians of different denominations. And I know this morning we have different denominations represented. For example, and don't answer these, but some questions that we ask. Can a Christian go to dances? Can a Christian dance? Can a Christian go to movies? Can a Christian play cards? I did in Bible college. We played with a couple, Terry and Sandy from Alaska, and we played Pinochle, and he was a card counter, and I haven't played Pinochle, I don't think, since then, but, but we were looked down by certain people because we played cards or played games, and sometimes that would be then associated with, well, that's like a form of gambling or this or that, and they play cards in Vegas, and, and it's like, forget that, I'm playing games. All right, you know, but, but can a Christian gamble? Can a Christian smoke? Can a Christian drink socially? Can a Christian get tattoos? Can a Christian listen to secular music? I mean, all kinds of questions came up. Now, since we have two men that served on our board in the Owine Church, I have a couple of stories to share this morning. But back in the 1990s, from 94 to 99, I pastored Lighthouse Assembly of God in Owine, Iowa. And I remember when I first got there, one of the members, and I won't give the person's name because they will know this person, but one of the members of the church talked to me when I first got there about the evils of television and how the church should not have a TV in the church because of the evil associated with television. Well, friends, the TV was there when I got there. I didn't buy the TV, and we used it, you know, in years to come, we used it for discipleship classes, for, for uh, uh, those kind of things, and, and, uh, and this person was very headstrong about this, so I asked this person, by the way, do you have a TV in your house? Well, yeah. And then I asked this question. So what's the difference of you having a TV in your house and one being in the church? And there was silence. Because there's no difference. I've even heard of a pastor telling his congregation that Christians shouldn't use the Internet because of all the evils associated with the Internet. Friends, I have nothing against a TV. If you have the money, the bigger the better, get an 80-some inch TV. <laughs> I have nothing against that, and good can come from them, but they could also be used for evil purposes. I think of the Internet today and, and even uh, uh, social media and so, and the child trafficking, and just heard a report this past week on the news, Arizona being a key state for that because our borders aren't closed because our government isn't doing its job all right uh uh, internet uh, pornography on the, on the internet and such, uh, perhaps indoctrination to various ideologies of the news media and the world and so. Um, last month, Jill and I went to, a, to our annual minister's sectional council meeting and one of the presenters said something that really hit me. He said, this generation of young people have grown up knowing nothing but the internet. And it's like, yeah, that's true. That is true for you young people. And I mentioned to Jill on the way home that I was glad that I was able to grow up in the days without the internet, without cell phones, because we were creative, we did things, we were outside, we played, we rode bikes, we got into trouble, all those things. But, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that we weren't glued to our electronic devices back then. I mean, think about it. Back then, you could actually go to the restroom without your phone. 
I also had time to fry ants with my magnifying glass from Grandma. I talked about that last week. Even when I was on a missions trip to Brazil in 1987, the debate among the church members then were about women wearing pants and makeup and fingernail polish, something they didn't do then. Uh, back in the mid-80s, they were like, you know, maybe the somebody's the God back in the, in the 1950s or so, and the men weren't allowed to wear Bermuda shorts or tank tops. Uh, when I was there, true story, the men sat on one side in the church and the women sat on the other side in the church. And it was very common then as I was preaching with an interpreter for the women to breastfeed their babies. Okay, men, I'm going to talk to you today. That's what it was like. I mean, it was very different, very, very strange in that. But uh, that was a debate back then. And even today, that debate can be real. Now, these are just some of the matters that we have debated over the years. And if we were to take time and say, okay, let's brainstorm what are some of the other debatable issues, we come up with a longer list. I know that. But here's the focus of this morning's message. There are some matters of behavior where the lines between right and wrong are not as clearly defined as we would like them to be. For the record, and I'll say it this way, hang on a sec. I have always been a very black and white person. Black is black, white is white, right is right, wrong is wrong. God has spoken, God has not stuttered. I cannot deviate and will not deviate from that. And yet it was in Old Wine, Iowa at our second house where a missionary couple shared with me a definition of spiritual maturity that has rocked my boat over the years. And they said this, spiritual maturity is not the ability to see everything as either black or white, but to live graciously in the shades of gray. I don't like gray areas. I like black and white. All right? But that begs the question then, where do we draw the line and how do we determine what our position will be in some of these gray areas? There are three questions we're going to look at this morning that I think can help define uh, and refine, really, our position on any debatable matter. Now, any two-sided or multi cited topic that, and I'm going to say this clearly, that is not clearly spelled out in Scripture. That is not clearly spelled out in Scripture. Now, this isn't about whether robbing banks is an acceptable side hustle. It's not. Right, police officers? All right. And this is not about sex and sexual relations being redefined by society because these things are clearly defined in God's word, and God's been very clear what his word says. He has made two sexes, male and female. He created them. I'm also a firm believer, uh, according to the Bible and science, that men don't get pregnant. All right? But cer certain things are clearly defined in God's word. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that... that Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that or whatever. So here's the first question we should ask ourselves. Have I taken the time to think this matter through? Have I taken the time to think this matter through? Am I looking at this topic or this debatable issue from both sides? Am I trying to see and understand the other side and where the other person is coming from? 
I mentioned this way back in week two of this series when I mentioned a, a, a teacher who teaches English composition on the university level, and she gives her students an assignment each semester. Well, after teaching them to write a persuasive essay and having them turn their paper in on the topic of their choice, she then gives them this assignment, now write a persuasive essay, same topic, but from the other point of view. Most students, she said, are incapable of seeing their topic from another perspective. Now, if you want to build unity with someone whose viewpoint is different from your own, the very first step is to understand what they really believe, where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe. See, we are often tempted to minimize and misrepresent any point of view that's not our point of view. Or when listening to the other person, and I'm guilty of this many times, we try to formulate while they're talking our argument how to respond to them instead of really listening to what they have to say. It's like while they're talking, you have come up with this great rebuttal. And they get done talking and you can't remember what the rebuttal was. <laughs> you know, that's age creeping up on us. And by the way, this happens more often than, than it should. You see, there is something about one-dimensional, one-size-fits-all worldview that we find all but irresistible. You see, we love it. We love it when there's only one way of looking at things our way. And we think our way is always the right way. But there are some topics that aren't cut and dried as much as we want them. There's where we learn to live graciously in the shades of gray. There may be, there just might be more than one perspective to consider. One of the things that Pastor Nancy said when she was here with us for a number of years, there are a lot of ways to do things right. There are a lot of ways to do things right. See, it's the annoyance of nuance, and most relevant topics are, in fact, nuanced. That's why Paul says, I speak to sensible people, verse 15. Judge for yourselves what I say. Other translations say, I speak to reasonable people. In effect, Paul is saying, you pride yourself in being intellectually accomplished and theologically sophisticated, so look at this matter from every angle. Paul's saying, you guys, you're sensible, you're reasonable. And then Paul presents the nuance of the argument. On one hand, he says, verse 20 and 21, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have both a part in the Lord's table and the table of demons. That's one side of the coin. The other side says, verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he goes on in verses 29 and 30, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? In other words, Paul is saying, I'm paraphrasing, why am I being denounced for something that is between God and me and it's no one else's business? That's what he's saying here. He says, guys, you're sensible, 
you're reasonable, think this matter all the way through as objectively as possible from both sides of the coin and let that influence your final decision. Now, in the book of Romans, when Paul is talking about this and other disputable topics of debate, he says this in Romans 14, verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them, Paul says, should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, he's saying, let's give ourselves a chance to explore the story from the other side. You know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And please know I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about false doctrine. I am talking about things that aren't clearly defined in God's Word. But God's Word does define most things concerning life for us. Now, we do, we do need to learn to accept people where they are versus where we, where we want them to be. All right, Romans 14.1, the message paraphrase Bible says, Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Once again, read the entire chapter of Romans 14 and using different paraphrases and different translations, you'll get the gist of what Paul's trying to say here. But bottom line is we have to look closely at this matter and, and, and really what kind, of, what kind of viewpoint are they coming up with and, and, and ultimately you know, we have to decide and it's your decision, not the decision of somebody else, but you have to decide what is right for you. And you have to take responsibility then for whatever conclusion you come to. All right? And you will never be able to deflect that responsibility while saying, well, the pastor said this, or our church says thus and so, or society has said this, or our government has told us to do, what, to do whatever. I have come to the conclusion in my life at 61 years of age that if the government is telling me to do one thing, then I, I'm probably better off doing the opposite. I, I just don't trust them. I do not trust both parties. Democrat and Republican are what I now call the Unity Party or the Universal Party, whatever it is. But, but basically, think, think back to four years ago, the COVID shots. You can't do this and that unless you get a shot, and they were wrong about that. Uh, the masks, they were wrong about that. This past week, CB, uh, CDC, the, the uh, Control for or, uh, Deception and Control is what it is, um, <laughs> But they, they basically have come, come up this past week saying you no longer need to take the, the five-day break if you get COVID. You don't have to quarantine yourself for five days like you used to. Friends, they keep on changing things. All right? And that's just one area. But in this matter of trying to decide between what's right and what's wrong, let, you, let me also give you a cautionary note. You and I can go on the Internet and we can pretty much find anything we want to back up our opinion. Warning sign, be careful there. You can look up a minister that's been out there in the front, in the public's view, whatever, and you can find good stuff and bad stuff about most people. 
just be careful what you're looking for, all right? Um, and it's the same with, with God's Word. You can, you can twist God's Word to make it fit your theological bent if you want it to. Now, ask ourselves the question, have I taken time to thoroughly think this matter through or am I just parroting what I heard someone else say? Question one. The second question is this. Which choice is the most constructive for all? Which choice is the most constructive for all? In verse 23, Paul repeats a phrase that he used in chapter 6, verse 12. The English Standard Version uh, says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then in chapter 10, verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. As I read the New International, the NIV did a New International version, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Now, one thing we should consider, whether we're trying to decide whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols or, or something comparable, is this. What is best for everyone here? All right, which choice can I make that is most likely to build others up rather than tearing others down. That's why Paul would say in verse 24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. I also remember in pastoring in Oldwine, Iowa, that I would meet with the area pastors once a month and we would pray together and we met at different churches to do so. Well, that prayer meeting was the result of me when I first got there. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but, but I went to the, uh, the church council of Owine and I asked them, I'm a, I'm a new guy there, I said, so what can we do as ministers, as clergy, what can we do to reach our city for Jesus Christ? To which I was told, we're not here for that reason. I was shocked. I was taken back. I was like, what are we here for, to read the Reader's Digest? You know, what, what are we here for? And, and that was the last time I attended that uh, uh, church council meeting. And I, I, I met with other area pastors, and I said, would you guys be interested in praying together? And they were. And so it was myself, it was the Baptist pastor who was an Assembly of God pastor, but divorced, not remarried. And he was pastoring at that time the Baptist church. There was the Stanley church pastor, a congregational church. There was a church of Christ pastor and the E-free pastor. And I assured them what's best for the situation here. I assured them that when we prayed together that I would not pray in tongues. Just to alleviate what they might have been afraid of. Do you understand me? See, sometimes as Pentecostals, we, we like to wear our, our Pentecostal privilege on our sleeves saying, well, the Bible says and this, that, and it's like, well, yeah, but I, I can pray in the Spirit, but I can also pray with understanding. All right? And, and we'll, we'll go into more depth about that in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And so we prayed together, and it was good. I was seeking the good of others. See, in the Corinthian church... There were those who no doubt still felt the pull of their old pagan way of life. Eating meat that had been sacrificed you know, to idols on the altar or whatever. And so Paul is simply saying, you know, take, 
take into consideration what's going on there as far as your individual freedom goes. Paul recommends what I call, and I loosely call call it this, it's sort of a don't ask, don't tell approach. In verses 25 through 30, he says, guys, you can can eat any meat that is sold in the market, just don't ask about its history. That's what he's saying. So church, if you're invited to a friend's house and they serve you steak, don't ask where it came from, just enjoy it. (laughs) Now truth be told, I have to confess this morning, I am a second-hand vegetarian. Cows eat grass, and I eat cows. <laughs> I actually have a t-shirt that somebody from this church gave me years ago has on the front of it PETA. People eating tasty animals. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, if you're at your friend's house, but this time they make it a point to tell you that this meat, the steak, or whatever has been offered in a sacrifice then you politely decline because you don't want to cause anyone to stumble. But then Paul says this in verse 29, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Now this verse right there hints at the fine line to consider as we decide what is best here. What is best here? It's one thing to say, if this action will cause you to stumble, I'll refrain. But... That doesn't mean that everything we do is up for vote among those who only want to pass judgment on everybody else. To say it clearly, if something makes another person falter in their faith, let's refrain from doing it. But if they're only seeking something to use as ammunition to judge and condemn others, pay them no mind. The main question is, what is the most loving, uplifting, and constructive choice we can make? This is why Paul says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Bottom line for Paul is the salvation of the lost. Make sure you're doing all you can. Make sure your witness is being all it can be to make sure that people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he's saying, let's consider the spiritual weaknesses and vulnerabilities of others before we take a stand for our own spiritual liberty. Here's a third question that we need to ask ourselves. Number three, which path most glorifies God? Which path most glorifies God? The question we ask is never, how much sin can I get away with and still make it to heaven? Neither is the question, how far can I push the envelope and to what extent can I bend the rules and still qualify as spiritual? Those are not the right questions to ask. The right question to ask is, how can I bring the most glory to God in my every action and in my interaction with others? In other words, I want to live my life where God is glorified. I want to live my life where God is is, is honored through my choices, through my decisions, through my life, through how I live my life. God is to be glorified in my every action and interaction with others. 
In other words, what can I do to inspire people to say, man, your God, your God is so good, I want to know him. So Paul says, whether you eat or drink, verse 31, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Church, you and I need to get to a point where we, with all of our hearts, want to bring him glory. More than insisting on our Christian liberties and more than insisting on our Christian rights. How can God and how will God be glorified in this matter, which matters more than any liberty we might indulge? Let God be glorified in everything. Because truth be told, nothing else matters except that he be glorified. That, you know, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 3, or Ephesians 3.21. Unto him, unto him be glory in the church. Unto him, God, be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus through all ages, world without end, amen. And by the way, God will not share his glory with another. So how can God be glorified? Let me wrap this up. Back when I was a boy, I attended vacation Bible school. And, and one of the things that we learned in VBS, Vacation Bible School, was what the word joy stands for. Most of you have heard this, Jesus, others, you. That's how you spell joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you, in that order. In other words, first we want to bring glory to God in all we do as we exalt the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus, that he might have preeminence. And then second... We want to build up others and serve them in a way that they become strong or stronger in their faith. And so life's not about me, it's about them. It's about others. Third, then we take our own rights and preferences and privileges into consideration. But only to the extent that we never lose sight of J and we never lose sight of O and we keep you in the right place as well. And always spell it, Jesus, others, you. And so that begs the question we started out with. Is it right or is it wrong to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Or today, to play bingo, or to go gambling, or to get your ear pierced, or to have tattoos, or any of the other non-absolutes people may debate. See, Bottom line is, you can let someone tell you, because there's a lot of people that want to tell you how to live your life and what to think and whatever, or like Paul has advised, you weigh out each question, you reason it through, you look at it from every angle, you consider what is the best way to build up others, and which is the best path, ultimately, to bring glory and honor to God. Because we are here not to serve our own purposes, but his purpose, his purposes. That's why we're here. And so from there, as Paul said to the church in Rome, let each of us be convinced in our own mind. Let each of us be convinced in our own mind. Last Wednesday was Valentine's Day, and I taught on Valentine's Day Wednesday night from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, known as the love chapter and gave the 15 qualities uh, that Paul writes about love in, in, in the verses there, 4 through 7, I think it is. 
and how, how love is more important than spiritual gifts and this and that and everything else, five things that's more important than. But when I, when I concluded Wednesday night, I said, you know, it all comes down to this. And really, today's message comes down to this as well. If today's sermon was five words, it'd be these five words. Love God and love people. That's what it comes down to. When making decisions about what's right, what's wrong, in some of these gray areas, these gray areas where we can live graciously in the shades of gray, love God and love people. That's what it comes down to. Now, how many of you this morning would say, you know, I, I need help in loving God, or I need help in loving people, or I need help in both. I just need God to help me to decide, you know, what's right, what's wrong in, in, in this matter. And so let's all stand to our feet. I'm going to close in prayer. But I ask God this morning to help you, to help you to see things, not just from your point of view, but from his point of view, his perspective, from a biblical standard, having a biblical worldview, yes, but on those matters that are debatable, they're just getting ready for chili, on those matters that are debatable, saying, God, help me, help me to ask the right questions, help me to do what's best for maybe others, not myself, and Lord, help me to bring you glory and honor in all my decisions. So Father, this morning, as we stand before you, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word's not going to return to your void, but it's going to accomplish your purposes. And I pray, God, for each of us today to, to, that you would help us, God, to make those decisions in our lives that would be, a, be in benefit to others. Make those decisions, God, that would, that would be uh, constructive, maybe, in that relationship. But ultimately, God, that you would help each of us, God, to live our lives so that you and you alone be glorified. God, that we wouldn't seek our own glory, our own you know, accolades, our own fame or whatever, but God, to live our life for you on purpose. God, to lay aside, to lay aside our privileges, our blessings, and at times even our, our Christian rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the salvation of the lost. And I, I pray, God, that you would help us in that, in our relationships between husbands, wives, and, and parents, and children, and, and families, Father God, in our neighborhoods, at, at work, whatever it might be, God, to, to, not, to not be so headstrong and say it's only my way in, 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 in issues that, that don't have any clear uh, scriptural backing for. And God, that you would receive glory and honor and praise in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.